If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 148 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This time around, we talk with Dr. Clark Quinn. Clark has been involved in the design, development, and evaluation of educational technology for more than 30 years. As a consultant, a speaker, and an author, Clark helps organizations work smarter by leveraging technology in alignment with how we think, work, and learn. Before we turn to the conversation with Clark, here's a message from Next Thought, our sponsor for the third quarter of 2018. Brought to you by Next Thought, associationsnext.com is your opportunity to learn from some leading thinkers in e-learning and membership organizations, as well as giving you the chance to test drive the Next Thought LMS platform. In this educational series, you'll uncover new knowledge about instructional design, digital strategy, and staying true to your organization's long-term goals in the face of rapid change. Kiki Latalian, Tracy King, and Lowell Applebaum lead the first three modules, and more courses will be added on a monthly basis. Visit associationsnext.com to enroll and experience the revolutionary Next Thought LMS for yourself. And I'll note that uh, Tracy King, who you mentioned there, has, is somebody who's been on the Leading Learning Podcast before. We'll be sure to link to an episode with her. But now back to the focus of this episode. And Salisa, can you give us a taste of what's to come? What, what do you and Clark talk about? We spend the lion's share of our time talking about topics that are related to Clark's latest book, which is called Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions, Debunking Learning Myths and Superstitions. And if you find yourself having to confront viewpoints that are contrary to sound learning design, like maybe that old saw about learning styles that just doesn't seem to die, or if you find yourself facing controversial proposals, you know, maybe assertions that that micro-learning is the best way to do learning, then this book is for you. The book's set up so you can zero in on a particular learning misconception and then jump straight to what the research says about it. Clark and I talk about the premise of that book in general. We get into um, what it means to design learning for the situation rather than the learner. We touch on the nuances of micro-learning nuances that make it hard to even use the term micro-learning in a meaningful way, and we get into the dangers of best practices, and you'll have to listen to see what I mean by that. Clark is a, a thoughtful, intelligent guy, and he's clearly committed to helping learning and development really take the center stage position that it deserves and that it needs to take. Um, and you know, he sees, as I know you and I do as well, Jeff, that learning is really only growing in significance. Well, I have been following Clark's writing for some time, and even just this morning, something happened to float by in my feed reader uh, about microlearning and him taking uh, people to task on some of the ways in which microlearning is being misrepresented. So really looking forward to his perspectives. He always has very, very interesting things to say. So let's cue the interview with Dr. Clark Quinn. Hello out there. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I have the privilege of talking with Dr. Clark Quinn. Clark has been involved in the design, development, and evaluation of educational technology for more than 30 years. And he's delved into educational games, mobile learning applications, performance support tools, online conferences, web-based learning, evaluation methodologies, 
adaptive systems, and even more. He keynotes nationally and internationally and is the author of numerous articles, chapters, and books, including, most recently, Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions, Debunking Learning Myths and Superstitions. Clark, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you, Salisa. A pleasure to be here. So to start things off, I want to give you a chance to say more about yourself and your work since I compressed several decades of of deep and broad experience into just a few sentences. So what would you highlight as additional background for our listeners? Um, Okay. Well, the first thing to understand is I saw the connection between computers and learning as an undergraduate. I was tutoring and got a job doing the computer support for the office that did the tutoring. I went, wow, computers and learning, could this be a thing? And uh, I... We didn't have a degree in it, but we had a program where you could design your own major. And I eventually designed my own major in computers and learning, and it's been my career ever since. And, you know, it's my passion as well as my my job. It's what I do. And it's led to some strange twists. I got a job designing educational computer games after I finished my degree, went back to grad school because I realized we didn't know enough about how to design them. I went and got a PhD in what is effectively applied cognitive science, and that's sort of I've had the opportunity to apply that in a number of uh, technologies that were sort of at the cutting, if not the bleeding edge, have the scars to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) um, But, you know, mobile uh, games, uh, adaptive are all things I've had the chance to play with. And that sort of characterizes the approach I bring. I now help organizations design learning experiences that more closely align with what we know about how our brains think, work, and learn. And, But at the core, it's about understanding our thinking, that cognitive science area, and taking what new technologies allow us to do and putting those together to make more effective solutions. Well, that's great. Like I said, you have this deep and broad experience. Uh, You've been involved in this area for a long time. But it was actually your your latest book, That Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions, uh, that prompted me to, to reach out to invite you to be a guest on the Leading Learning Podcast. So let's start with that book. And... I'll note that you don't address only myths. You also include superstitions and misconceptions. So would you explain what learning myths are versus learning superstitions versus learning misconceptions? Sure. And I thought saw this as an opportunity to try and lift our game in a number of different ways. So myths are things that people tout and sell and people adopt and try and accommodate in their designs that we know aren't so. Mm -hmm. We have evidence that these don't do any good. In fact, they can do harm. So the myths are all about things that we should know better about. Superstitions are practices I don't think people even consciously would accept, but it shows up in their practices and their behavior, so it's more implicit than explicit. These are things, behaviors that people do, including things, you know, so myths would include things like learning styles and Dale's Cone and um, millennials and a number of things that people will talk about. The, the superstitions are more just behaviors that we see where people will believe, end up putting up content and adding a quiz and thinking, not even necessarily explicitly, that that's going to lead to some meaningful outcome. And the final category, misconceptions, are areas where some people you know, there's an idea that some people love and some people hate. And what I'm trying to do is make sense out of it. So you know whether it makes sense for you or not. And this includes things like 70, 20, 10 and micro learning, a number of areas where 
you know, a lot of people are talking about it, but there's a lot of undifferentiated viewpoints. And I'm trying to just make sense so you can figure out what makes sense for you to adopt or not. Well, so obviously you've done this categorization work, you know, because you have these myths, you have these superstitions, you have these misconceptions. But I'm curious, you know, do you see sort of a scale of severity for these myths, superstitions, and misconceptions? Meaning, is there kind of one that seems, you know, more egregious or more dangerous or more counterproductive to learning than the others? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, I don't know that any of these are really so bad that they're <laughs> threatening lives, you know. <laughs> they're not, you know, if you don't address this, it's going to explode. Um, we're not quite there. But um, some of them, I think, are, they all, I think, are worth addressing because Otherwise, you know, it's not just wasting time or money. If you go in and design your learning to accommodate this particular myth, you could be wasting money that could be better spent on d doing better design. But that's not really it. Some of these things will actually undermine good design. They'll lead you to do things that can hurt the learning outcome instead of helping it. But uh, I, you know, so to me, though, the severity may be how persistent they are and how hard they are to kill. Learning styles is just an amazing zombie. Mm. <laughs> I think it's because everybody recognizes that learners differ, and that's not at, you know, at issue. The problem is we can't reliably uh, identify a learner's particular style because it tends to change depending on what they're learning and time of day and, and where they're learning and a variety of other factors. And then, of course, there's no evidence that trying to adapt learning to the learning style works. There's, in fact, evidence that it may not be. And we have a better approach. We can design learning for the learning outcome you're trying to achieve. That's how you should be adapting the learning. So I recently suggested that perhaps the, the worst uh, outcome is maybe just that notion that knowledge test you know, information dump and knowledge tests is going to lead to any meaningful change. And I think about um, compliance testing uh, on things like diversity acceptance and um, sexual harassment mm -hmm. and bullying. And my concern is these are things that if we address properly, we might reduce. But most of what we see being done, and I'm mindful thinking of just the recent Starbucks example on, you know, mm -hmm. awareness diversity awareness isn't just going to actually make a change and to that extent it could lead to lingering continuing incidents that aren't the type of outcome we'd like to have mm. well and i want to pick up on something that you noted because it's it's another um aspect of of your book that that struck me that you make um that that point, and I think this ties into what you're saying about learning styles, you make the point that too often we're tempted to design for the learner when we should really design for the material. So what I'd love for you to do is unpack that statement a little bit. You know, what does it really mean to design for the learning and not for the learner? Well, specifically for learning outcomes, we have different types of goals. We may need to be able to operate this particular piece of equipment successfully. We may need to be able to follow this process and allow individual variation without going outside the bounds of what's acceptable. We may need to learn how to deal with people. These are different types of learning outcomes, and they may require different types of um, processes. So, 
and one of the things I address in the book is is Bloom's taxonomy, which I think uh, is not actually uh, well-created, well-structured. Um, Brenda Sugru did a lovely evisceration of it that I point to. <laughs> and instead, you know, learning science talks about certain types of outcomes we do want, you know, whether you need to be able to follow procedure, whether you need to be able to make a conceptual distinction, whether you need to be able to make um, certain types of decisions. And uh, to accomplish these, they require different types of practice, and that's what we should be focusing on making sure we're doing. Uh, again, information dump and knowledge test isn't an appropriate approach in almost any instance you can think of. But when you do want an appropriate approach, you should find out what the learning outcome you need is and then align the learning to that. Okay, great. So it's really then it's that focus on the learning outcome, then that's going to help you understand what types of activities and um, practice opportunities, et cetera, that are going to actually support that learning outcome. And if you're focused on that, then you don't have to um, be as focused on the learner, especially as you're saying, when the learning styles, there's no real data to support that there's any advantage in trying to uh, tease that out and um, develop differently. Exactly. And, you know, that also includes you know, when do you use which media? It's not, you know, oh, let's use video for everything. Mm. No, it actually turns out there are cognitive properties associated with different media. There's times when uh, photos make sense and then other times when diagrams make sense. And if you understand the learning outcome you're trying to achieve and how that plays out through our cognitive architecture, you can make better choices and make the right choices. Uh, well, that's great, right? Because you've emphasized several times, you know, it's, there's what's at stake here is, um, you know, wasted time, wasted money. But then, as you've already mentioned, even in our conversation, then there's also just, there's, there's the sort of the missed opportunity. There's the actual interfering with learning versus supporting the learning that you're trying to get at. So I want to talk about one of the specific misconceptions that you tackle in the book, because I think it's kind of still in this uh sort of in the, the buzz word category, and that's microlearning. And one of the things that you point out is that microlearning really encompasses several different facets of learning. So it can be used for performance support. It can be used for space learning. It can be used for contextualized learning. What does that more nuanced view of microlearning, that, that understanding that there are these different facets and these different ways to use microlearning, what does that really mean for the effective design and use of microlearning? <laughs> well, um, it, it, it sort of brings up the question about whether you should use the phrase microlearning at all, mm. because it, you know, it leaves open this interpretation. People maybe think they're getting X and instead they're getting Y. And I recently wrote, um, read an uh, article that was going, oh, you know, um, we're talking about breaking up things into little chunks and, and spreading it out over time. And I said, great, that's space learning. And then a short while later in the article, they go, oh, the example of when you look up a YouTube video to fix something, and it helps you in the moment. And I was like, but see, that's performance support. That's not space learning. You just confounded the two, and it means you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I worry about that. But when you do dig into them, one of the things that I think a mistake that people can think about in terms of microlearning is, well, if I take out my big course and I chunk it up into little 10-minute sections and then stream those out over time, that's going to be microlearning and that will lead to better learning outcomes. And that's actually not true. Uh, that course probably wasn't going to work by itself anyways. But when you break things up in a, and 
into chunks and give little bits over time, what you have to do is some of those are going to atrophy. In fact, they're all likely to atrophy, and you're going to have to bring them back at the right schedule. So there's nuances in doing the spaced learning that if you just take a very, you know, go, oh, microlearning means breaking things up in little chunks. So breaking up little chunks, it's all going to be good. Doesn't accurately convey. And then when you go into performance sport, there are nuances on doing that right. What is, you know, learning isn't necessarily an outcome. If the time I needed to fix my dryer and found that YouTube video, great, I got the dryer fixed. I have no recollection of even what was wrong with it. I <laughs> go back and, I, and use that, go find the video again and watch it again. And that's okay. It's perfect fine. It's not learning at all. It's performance support. And designing good performance support means helping people follow the process and things, and there are good ways to do that. But you have to step away from your learning mindset and step into a mindset of what's the least, you know, I talk about the least assistance principle. What's the least assistance that will get people to success? And that's all they care about. And it's a very different thing. And so getting those wrong. And that's why I say one of the things we don't do is is in that performance support moment, if there's an opportunity for learning, we could build that in. And that, to me, would be a really nice uh, view of what microlearning could be to separate it from performance support and space learning. But, of course, that's not what anybody's talking about when they mean it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. I think it is wonderful to sort of tease out the different applications. I think that also ties back to what you were saying about that focus on learning outcomes. You know, if we're going to preserve this use of the term microlearning, that might be fine, but we also have to be more specific <laughs> about how we're using it or or what, um, what, which, which, what we're trying to get out of how we employ it. So I think that's great um, to have that more nuanced uh, understanding of it. Now, one of the other things that you um, caution against in the book that definitely resonated with me because um, it, it's something that uh, we here at Tagoras have, have emphasized um, ourselves more in the context of um, learning strategy, but but what you talk about is that it's really uh, not a great idea to lift be- best practices from kind of one situation and then try to place them uh, in our own situations. That uh, c- can be uh, uh, dangerous or certainly sort of not very effective because you're losing that context of the situation. You're losing that. And so, you know, given the limitations of best practices, um, do you see a value and, and what is the value in, in looking at other organizations and what they're doing with learning and where they're successful? Are there ways that we can make use of those kinds of, of case studies still? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's, I want to make a, a distinction that I think is important. Best practices says this worked for us. Let's try and reinstall that here. And I remember a large comp- international company that hired my colleague to come in and said, just go see what the best companies in elsewhere in the world do and, and tell us that and have us do that. And it's like, that's silly. It's not going to work. And he, But if you look at those good examples, and ideally if you look at several of them, what you can do is you can abstract the principles about why it worked, decontextualize it. It's like, you know, in good learning design, you should provide examples and show how a, a model, a conceptual model guides that reason that worked. And what you want to do is abstract that model and then recontextualize it. So instead of best practices, you're abstracting the best principles, and then you recontextualize those. And I would suggest that the 
what people should do is find those people who have abstracted those principles and talk in terms of models and have them come in and assist you in building those best principles, recontextualize them for your particular situation. You can't just copy what somebody else has done. You have to understand why it worked and how you have to revise that to work where you are. Mm-hmm. So it's we can still learn, but it's definitely being aware of the the context and the situation that made those uh, particular actions or approaches work, like you're saying, then abstract them and then recontextualize them in our situation. That that to me makes a, a lot of sense. Um, Getting so I, into the causal story about what's going on behind the scene, what's the underlying you know ebb and flow of of causal factors and relationships that caused that to work there. Right. Excellent. And, and so I have. I think that just a final question about millennials, goldfish, and other training misconceptions, um, and that is, what do you think makes these myths and superstitions and misconceptions so prevalent and so persistent? You know, is there a root cause that you've ferreted it out that you know uh, kind of is responsible for our, our less than ideal understanding of and use of um, sound learning principles? Sure. Uh- and, you know, we don't fully understand it because otherwise if we did, we'd maybe be able to get rid of them. And, you know, they emerge from different places. But I think the reason they're so persistent is they simplify the world in a way that resonates with our own interpretations. Now, there's this small problem that our explanations of the world aren't necessarily well aligned with the world. Mm-hmm. We've seen a number of uh, recent research Things like uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and that behavioral economics stuff that shows that our sort of folk explanations of the world and the real way the world works aren't well aligned. And they make perfect sense given our cognitive architecture to find simplifications and models that explain things. It's just it resonates with part of what we believe and then it takes it to another place that makes it sound simple and gives you leverage to, to make solutions. The problem is that that extra inference is wrong. And there are other inferences you could make, but you're not being exposed to them. Or they may be slightly more complex. And the funny thing is, you know, our brain is arguably the most complex thing in the known universe. And the notion that simplistic solutions are going to make systematic changes in this complex thing, kind of silly. In a sense, it really is the new rocket science. Hmm. But you have to be a rocket scientist to do this. We have some very good principles about what makes good learning design. But it requires this learning instead of these simplistic rotes that sound nice and are appealing. They just happen to be wrong. Um, was it H.L. Mencken who said that, you know, for every problem, there's a solution that's simple, elegant, and wrong. Uh, (laughs) And so it it makes sense that we want to find things that simplify the world. And if people tell us it works and, you know, we experience and it seems to work, oh, great. It just, uh, when you, you know, cut through the veneer and get down into the brass tacks, you go, oh, this is kind of wrong. Okay, I better go back to the drawing board. That's what we'd like. It's just really hard. Yes, I can. Uh, I know that I personally am attracted to things that um, make the complex simple. It is very uh, reassuring <laughs> to feel like there's there's this order out there, and that you have your marching orders for how to uh, how to proceed. But like you said, where we know that we um, 
that things are much more complex than we often um, uh, are willing to admit. And so, yeah, to like I think your point about the fact that we know how complex the brain is and to think that we can sort of make simple operations that are going to have a profound impact on, on the brain that, that is counterintuitive. So even if we just stop to think some, sometimes we can begin to appreciate the complexity. I get scared. I see companies, you know, bringing this simple instrument and saying, well, we won't hire anybody who, you know, doesn't meet this criteria on this test. And it's like so arbitrary. And these tests aren't even necessarily psychometrically valid. And yet you can ruin people's lives on this thing instead of dealing with those individuals and finding out. And yeah, it's easy, but it's just really unconscionable at the end of the day. Mm. So... (laughs) Well, so, you know, to pick up kind of bigger picture and, um, you know, not necessarily related to this latest book and this latest body of work of yours, but, you know, you've, you've been involved in the design and the development and the evaluation of, of educational technology for more than 30 years. You've been involved with, you know, learning all, all along. So what key changes, for better or for worse, have you seen during that time? Uh, um, oftentimes, new tech, you know, there's this trajectory with technologies and, you know, the Gartner hype cycle is a nice way to represent it, that we, people early on play with it and start trying to figure it out. And sometimes they replicate old, uh, you know, old ways of doing things in this new technology until they get on top of it. And we try and short circuit that by trying to understand their key affordances. But then they get overhyped and everything, this is going to be the solution to everything. Remember Second Life and Virtual Worlds were <laughs> the solution to everything? And then they weren't, and they collapse, and then gradually out of the ashes, some sensible applications come, and we're, and that, this happens, you know, over time. It happened with mobile learning. It's happening with AR and VR and AI now. the The problem is we had this, you know, horrendous event that happened in two thousand one. It sort of made us look to find ways to not travel. And so we spent ways in, in e-learning. And then we said, oh, well, we need to do that fast and cheap. And we got these tools that made it easy to do fast and cheap. But there's not enough understanding of, of learning science in our industry. And in many ways, I feel we're not quite professional enough about it. And so, you know, in 2014, uh, I joined with Will Talheimer and Julie Dirksen and Michael Allen to do the Series E-Learning Manifesto, trying to bring that back. And I feel like people are beginning to get back to start thinking about things. I hope that the success of the this book is going to, you know, is indicative of a growing interest in trying to do things smart and right. But the, we'll continue to see new technologies that's always that's pretty much a given and we're going to continue to hear hype about it but i'm hoping we can raise people's awareness of how to cut through that and be systematic about it and get smarter and i'm an optimist the book before this one was about learning strategy maybe it was a little early but i think people are beginning to start looking at the bigger picture start getting smarter i have a rather cheeky claim that 
L&D isn't doing near what it could and should. And what it is doing, it's doing badly. Other than that, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this, cutting through the misconception stuff is, and getting back to better learning is, you know, starting to do the stuff we are doing right. And then looking at the bigger picture, I think people are beginning to wake up that too. Start using performance support when that makes sense instead of a course. Start looking to the network instead of creating resources when you can because we're not getting more resources to do what we do. And yet I'm an optimist because ultimately the, what Ellen Dickey has to bring to the table is understanding and facilitating learning. And increasingly, that's going to be the differentiator. As change happens faster and faster, the organizations that learn fastest are going to be the ones that survive. And L&D can and should be facilitating that. If they're beginning to be the catalyst for the best innovation in an organization, they're going to be the most critical to that organization's success. And that's a huge opportunity. I just hope we can take advantage of it. Mm, that is a huge opportunity and right a crucial role that L&D can play. And, and maybe, the, you know, you've sort of already begun getting into this a little bit, but I'm just uh, interested to know if you have additional thoughts on kind of, you know, what's on the horizon for learning and or educational technology? Are there big changes that you think or that you hope we'll see in the next few years? Um, yeah, actually, there's an initiative that the IEEE, which tends to be the organization that does most of our standards uh, nationally and internationally and they are now working on learning engineering, figuring out the necessary competencies to start integrating technology and learning science more systematically and preparing people to, to take on those roles because we're seeing technology advance by leaps and bounds. And if we can successfully mesh that with what we understand of our brains, we have huge opportunities. And the technologies that I'm excited about uh, are beginning to couple Everybody's excited about big data and analytics, and I think that's important. But I'm really interested in the opportunities from taking our content and beginning to carve it up and tag it so we can start pulling it up by description instead of by hard wiring together courses. We can start doing rule-based because that's where we're going to start getting personalization and adaptivity and contextual learning. So at the right moment, we can just bring in the right thing opportunistically for you because we know who you are as a learner and what you, how you want to, what you want to learn and where you are, and we can start developing in little bits over time, and I think pulling that together. But it requires a deep look at content, and I've been trying to evangelize this for a few years and went to, a, you know, web marketing folks are way ahead of us in terms of what content can be doing. There's a bunch to learn there. There's a bunch to learn from AI about, you know, writing rules and, and doing some machine learning to tune those rules to start figuring out what to pull together when. And I think if we start... Uh, putting that together with what we know about learning, uh, there's um, really interesting things we're going to be able to do. Mm. I like that vision of the future, and, and especially that point you're making about the integration of, of the technology with what we know about learning and learning science. So that's that's great. Uh, I hope that we see that soon. Um, <laughs> So the next to last question as we begin to wrap up, and, and this is one that we ask everyone that we have on as a, a guest on the Leading Learning Podcast, and uh, I'm just interested in finding out what it's been one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing up your formal education. And this was a learning experience for me, but it was in creating a learning experience for others. After 
I, I graduated and did my postdoc and, and went to, um, was teaching at a university. And one of my colleagues came and said, you do this game things, right, Clark? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, we've got these people who want to do a game for kids. They grow up without parents. And uh, at age 18, they're sort of shoved out into the street to survive on their own. They're not prepared. You know, their training is at best. And there was a project called the Aftercare Project to deal with these kids to prepare them for being aftercare. And care is foster care and orphanages and all the things that are the other ways people live. And it was idiosyncratic at best. And so they want to do something systematic. And they'd gotten funding and they'd spent it on a video and a poster and a coloring book. Um, and... Uh, but then they, they realized what they wanted was a game. And so that's why my colleague came to me and put me together with him and said, could you get a game? Well, I happened to have a student who was interested in doing a meaningful project, a really good student. And we had I had taught HyperCard to my students as a way to do interfaces. So we had a common tool and a smart person and, and a real important goal. And we ended up designing a game that allowed these kids to explore and survive in the game before they had to do it on the streets. And it was a little simulation. You wander around the streets and tried to get food and get a job and, um, and get housing and all these things. And you could do it in a safe place. And it actually ended up being quite successful. They loved it, got some additional resources. I helped them get some additional resources to tart up the graphics and release it. And it ended up helping these kids. And it was... It shaped my thinking a lot. The the book, Engaging Learning on How Do You Design Learning Games, came from reflecting on that experience in a large part. And it also taught me a lot about what works and, and problems that kids face in the world. It was just the most rewarding thing I've done in terms of creating a solution that meets a real need. And it's a fabulous learning experience. And uh, the Funny thing is, is when I came back here to the U.S. and tried to get people interested in it, it's like, eh, nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and, and subsequently, I saw one somewhere, and it's like, oh, okay, somebody's finally managed to get somebody interested in doing this. It's just, uh, I think, too early. Uh, well, that's, no, that's great. I, I think that, that, like you said, that not only did you learn uh, a lot in developing that learning experience um, about how how games and simulations can can play out, but that you know you had this uh, fundamental need that you were f- fulfilling, which has to be you know really gave uh, import and meaning to the work you were doing. Which I think that's always um, extra nice when you you're you're doing something and doing it well, but you're doing it for good. <laughs> Yeah, and we had the time, we had access to the right people, and we followed, you know, I've been teaching interface design, and, and so we followed good design, and we uh, had a chance to reflect. We built a little coaching engine into it because of stuff we knew about that, you know, in an exploratory environment, people will stay in one small corner of it, exploring there and not realizing there's more. And so we really had a chance to put in some of the best principles of design and, and integrate them and make sense. It was fun. Well, thank you for sharing that. And so final question is, um, if listeners want to know more about you and your work, where should they go? Um, Well, uh, I have a blog where I sort of think out loud and thoughts that end up in presentations and keynotes and books. Uh, Learnlets.com is a place where I do a 
committed to pretty much two posts a week, and they can find thoughts there. I'm available. I help organizations fine-tune their you know, learning design processes to make uh, better solutions, to apply this cognitive science, to, to not try and redo their entire learning design process, but find those small places where, you know, those places where small changes will have a big influence on the impact without totally destroying, you know, their existing uh, budgets and schedules. And I do that through quinnovation.com. And I guess, you know, there are sites for each of the books, but you can find those from quinnovation.com as well. Um, for everyone, there's a sample chapter and, and resources associated with it. But learnless.com and quinnovation.com are the two sites I'd point you to. Wonderful. We'll make sure to include links to those in the show notes for this episode. Clark, thank you very much for taking time to speak with me today. And thank you for the work that you're doing to help debunk learning myths. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Salisa. I greatly appreciate the chance to talk with you. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Clark Quinn. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 148. The show notes include a link to Clark's blog, and we encourage you to check out some of his learnings about learning. The show notes also include links to past interviews with Will Tallheimer and Julie Dirksen, as Clark mentions them both. Julie and Will, like Clark, are engaged in a smart, practical, research-grounded approach to learning design and development. When you check out the show notes, you will see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact we're having with the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll put you in the right place. It won't take but just a minute. And that review data helps us know that you're getting value out of the podcast. And it also helps other people find the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would take a minute to visit associationsnext.com. Jeff and I put a lot of effort into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the reasons we can do that is because of the support of sponsors. So check out associationsnext.com, and there you're going to have the chance to learn and also to experience the Next Thought LMS in action. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick another social network of your preference, or simply walk down the hall and tell somebody to go to leadinglearning.com and check out all of the great content. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.